Welcome to 30 Minutes on 91.3 KXCI Tucson. I'm Amanda Shager. On September 23, 2015, the YWCA Tucson hosted Part 3 of their ongoing community discussion on mass incarceration and how it affects our community. Due to the ever-growing numbers of neighbors who are being incarcerated, as well as the collateral consequences, the YWCA Tucson believes that this conversation is part of their social advocacy work and their mission of eliminating racism, empowering women, and promoting peace, justice, freedom, and dignity for all. This set of workshops are part of the YWCA Tucson's ongoing year-long campaign for racial justice, held in conjunction with the Tucson Urban League, the Center for Community Dialogue, a program of Our Family Services, NAACP Chapter Tucson, and the Black Women's Task Force. Today on 30 Minutes, we'll feature excerpts from remarks made at the third community discussion on mass incarceration. This session focused on immigration detention. First up, YWCA board member Diane Wilson welcomes speakers Caroline Isaacs from the American Friends Service Committee, followed by attorney Margot Cowan. We're glad you're here. This is our third mass incarceration forum, and this one's about private prisons and immigrant detention. Our last forum this year, on November 18th, again, same place, same time, 6 to 8, we'll be discussing successful re-entry, and Old Pueblo Community Services will be the main presenter for that. And we're planning more forums next year, and we have a, a bookmark there you can pick up three of them that we're planning. I just want to tell you a little bit about the YWCA in terms of promoting what we do here. It's now the YWCA of Southern Arizona, a new name that shows our expanded vision. And we have as our mission empowering women, eliminating racism, promoting justice, peace, freedom, and dignity for all. The YWCA Board of Directors, along with Leanne Hernandez, have selected mass incarceration as a main focus to help us meet this mission. Women and people of color are the fastest growing prison populations. In this series, we have researched and questioned the effectiveness and the fairness of the criminal justice system. Our presenters today tell stories that not everyone wants to hear, but everyone needs to know. And knowing this means we can't unknow it. We need to work to change policies that unfairly condemn our citizens to half-life and to create a community that is not whole. Because what is done in the criminal justice system is done to all of us. I am proud to present tonight women activists who have not been content to leave injustice alone. They have seen what needs to be done, and they have done it. Caroline Isaacs will be our first speaker. She's director of the American Friends Service Committee and has been doing this since 1995. She conducts research and advocates for just and effective criminal justice policies in Arizona. And she keeps us informed about what we need to do. And I'm sure she'll tell us that. 
Margot Cowan is our second presenter, and she is employed as the Pima County Public Defender, but as a volunteer, she represents longtime Arizona res residents, immigrants with no criminal record whose appeals are being ignored by the Department of Homeland Security. Margot has been a leader in both sanctuary movements, the one in the 1980s and the current one. So, Caroline will begin. Can everybody hear me okay? I'm a low talker, like they say on Seinfeld, so let me know if that's a problem. I'm Caroline Isaacs. I'm with the American Friends Service Committee, Friends as in Quakers. We are the social action arm of the Quaker faith, which is about as obscure as it gets, um, and particularly here in Arizona, but uh, the Friends have a very long-standing testimony about peace and justice and equality issues, and particularly when it happens to come to uh, institutionalized people, uh, the mentally ill and people in prisons. It's a mixed bag. Uh, Quakers actually led uh, the charge against, you know, hanging, you know, putting people in stocks in the public square. Um, but they replaced that with the uh, invention of the penitentiary. So, whoops. <laughs> sorry, sorry, sorry about that. Uh, it, it seemed better at the time. Um, but we're, we're still working these many hundreds of years later to, to fix that one. Uh, I have been following, in particular, the rise of the for-profit prison industrial complex here in Arizona for many years. And so I'm going to talk to you a little bit about how that intersects with the issue of immigrant detention. It's pretty much part and parcel nationally and also here in Arizona. So these are, my numbers are all over the place in terms of years, so um, they may not be the most current, but at least it will give us a picture. So we're detaining 400,000 people, roughly, um, in 2012 at an annual cost of around $1.7 And that's detention. So the other thing I want to flag, and we'll, we'll probably get into this in the, in the rest of the panels, is um, the, the full uh, immigrant criminalization machine is much larger than that. So there's billions being spent on enforcement, which is your border patrol and, and whatever military, paramilitary forces are out there running around in the desert. Then you have your detention, which is you know this temporary holding. Then you actually have people serving actual prison sentences for what has been created as a federal crime um, for crossing the border or crossing the border again. Um, these are two actual crimes that were invented recently in federal prisons, in the federal prison system. Uh, and then you have people who are incarcerated in state prison facilities who happen to be undocumented. Um, who are also serving out their time there, and then will be deported. So the, the full system is even much larger than what we're going to talk about tonight, which will mostly focus on detention. So out of about 350 facilities that do just detention in the U.S., only eight of those are actually run by the federal government. Eight! Right? And the rest are doled out um, through these various contracts with for-profit prison corporations, with this jail, with that municipality, and sort of spreading that largesse throughout the country and throughout this, these systems. As you might expect, that's a hell of a lot of money. The request for just attention in FY14, $1.84 billion. $5 million a day. A day, right? 
how much housing would that provide? How much real safety could that provide? It's mind-boggling. And here's the other thing that I still can't believe it, even though I say this all the time. We are now spending more on immigration enforcement, Border Patrol and guys in uniforms, than all other federal law enforcement activities combined. More than we're spending trying to find drug lords, more than we're spending on the FBI, drug enforcement, secret service, tobacco and firearms, all of them put together. We spend more tracking down immigrants. So where's all that money going, you might wonder? To our friends in the for-profit prison industry. This is big money, and you better believe that now you have these county jails, you have these small municipalities actually trying to compete with CCA and GEO to get what, uh, what an actual uh, county administrator in Texas called honey holes. Honey holes. They're going to get us a honey hole because the federal government pays so well. So $122 per person per day. That's what they call the per diem. That's how they quantify human beings, right? Each human soul is worth, to the federal government in this case, $122 a day. Who's heard of the immigration quota? So this appeared in the 2010 federal budget and actually requires, through the budget, requires the federal government to lock up an average of 34,000 immigrants in detention at any given time. It's paid for. Done. The money is spent. We will have this many people locked up. Close to half a million immigrants annually. So just before that, you saw this incredible spike in the share of immigrant detention in for-profit prisons, right? It was already large. It was already about half, a little under half. Went up by 13%. So now 62% of all ICE immigration detention beds are operated by for-profit prison corporations. 62%. And nine of the ten largest detention centers, actual facilities, are privatized. Of course, CCA and GEO have the two largest shares of that. And they are working extremely hard to keep it and to grow it. And how do they do that? How do they get those contracts? Well, lobbying, of course. Right, so between 2008 and 2014, CCA spent over $10 million, $10.5 million, lobbying our Congress on detention and against immigration reform. They sent lobbyists to Capitol Hill to say, don't do a path to citizenship, that would hurt our bottom line. Of that amount, about 61% was spent directly on the subcommittee that oversees these appropriations. The Department of Homeland Security Appropriations Subcommittee, which determines the quota and how it's enacted. So our two largest for-profit prison corporations, Corrections Corporation of America, CCA, and GEO Group, formerly Wackenhut. They're the two big players, although there are many more growing up, as you saw in the earlier slide. And they're all really slick about this stuff. They say that they don't lobby to make stricter laws and things like that. They just don't have to, they just don't report it. And so then you can't say that they actually did it. But they've actually been caught recently in that lie, particularly GeoGroup has. And so while GeoGroup has not lobbied this subcommittee directly, they did have to report spending $460,000 between 2011 and 2014 lobbying on immigration and immigrant detention issues. And they're not just shooting the, shooting the 
you know what, right? <laughs> They're there with a purpose. These conversations have a purpose. And there's the purpose. About half of their profits for both these corporations come from these federal contracts. That is big, big, big money for them. Because, of course, the federal government is so much larger than these other given states. You have to run around and get all these contracts with Arizona, New Mexico, and everybody else when you can get a huge pot of money from the feds. So that is where they're all headed. So what's happening here? On any given day in the state of Arizona, we've got about 3,000 immigrants locked up in detention. And we have four detention centers in Arizona. Uh, one is actually run by ICE, the others are listed here, and the other three are all run by CCA. Pinal County Jail used to have a contract, but they don't anymore, which is cause for celebration because it was absolutely horrendous. And if you've read the news, you can see that Sheriff Babu is trying desperately to get any other um, poor suckers to, to sign that contract and fill his jail beds. Just by way of contrast, I think it's important to kind of talk about the larger picture, and this is also where I live, so I'm going to touch on this just a little bit. So then if, if you look at that, 62% of immigrants, federal system, private, Arizona has six private prisons, state prison contracts, right, for state felony convicted adults. Um, that's about 14% of our prison population. It may actually be higher than that because they just keep building them as fast as they can. About the 12th highest rate of for-profit incarceration in Arizona. I was really shocked it wasn't higher, actually. There's some states that don't have them at all. And then you have New Mexico that's got almost half of their prisoners in private prisons. So states really vary quite widely as far as how extensively they privatize their prisons. But the feds, they're all over it. The next thing I want to talk about, um, because I think I would be remiss in talking about the immigration issue and immigrant criminalization in Arizona, is just plain old racism. <laughs> just good old-fashioned racism here in our state prisons. Because if you look at this graph, so white folks, 56.2% of the state population, they're only 39.5% of the prison population. But then if you come on over here, Latinos, Right? Only 30% of the state population, a higher percentage, 39.9, in state prisons. That's new. There used to be more Anglos in state prison than Latinos. And in the last few years, that has flipped. If you look at the number for African Americans, it's even more shocking, right? 4.7% of our population, 13.4% of the prison population. Immense disparity. Native Americans about equal. And then this last piece I had to put down just to, to point out that 10.8% of the people reported in our state prison population are reported as, quote, criminal aliens by the Department of Corrections. So those are, we assume, uh, foreign nationals, um, probably some of them documented, um, but who have committed state crimes and are now going to be deported after they serve that sentence. And of course the conditions, which we're going to talk much more about. But there's a thread throughout um, that we find in looking at privately operated for-profit prisons across the board, no matter who they're holding, no matter where they are, how do they get those contracts? You've got to be the lowest bidder. How do you be the lowest bidder, do a thing, incarceration, which is inherently incredibly expensive, and then make a profit for your shareholders on top of that? There's no way. 
except by majorly cutting corners. And they cut corners pretty much in the same places. Staff pay, staff training, and programs for prisoners, right? All the problems that you see in these facilities, all the stuff about riots that happened in Kingman, all the stuff historically that you see, often goes back to those cost-cutting methods. The staff don't know what they're doing. <laughs> they're all new or newly promoted. They're green, and they are not ready to handle things that happen. They abuse the prisoners because they don't know anything else to do but to spray pepper spray in their faces because they haven't been trained. Um, and very, very bad things happen. Um, particularly, we're seeing in immigrant facilities a lot of segregation of prisoners. So that's lockdown, that's like solitary confinement, 23 hours a day, uh, no meals with other people, no recreation with other people. There's a real overuse of that, especially for people who attempt to organize their fellow prisoners, they don't like that. Um, major deficiencies in medical and mental health care. A lot of suicides, there's been an incredible rash of suicides in Eloy in particular. Abuse of LGBT, particularly transgender prisoners in those facilities at the hands of guards um, and sexual assault. And amazingly, year after year, these reports come out that the highest number of deaths in any immigrant facility in the nation happen in Arizona, right? And they happen in one facility, and that's CCA's Eloy facility. I wanted to, you know, give all this incredibly depressing information to you right at the top, both because I think it sets the stage for talking about what are the economic drivers be behind some of the, the political decisions that we're seeing that are going to be talked about, the reasons for underlying some of the conditions that we're going to be talking about. But that, as upsetting as it is, that gives us our target. Right, then we know what we are dealing with. Then we know where the pressure points are and the weaknesses in that system, and we know where we can use our organizing efforts. And so whenever I talk about prison privatization, I make an absolute point to say I am never, ever, ever going to say public detention facilities are better than private ones. Right? They are not. That's a false dichotomy. What we need is less detention. We need less criminalization. We need less prosecution, we need less enforcement, right? And to do things that actually deal with the social problems that we are facing, right? So it's really important, I think, as we have these community conversations to keep our eyes on the prize, to know who the, who the players are, where the powers are in this equation, so that we can be very savvy as voters and as citizens. So I'm, I'm gonna leave it there, thank you. That was Caroline Isaacs of the American Friends Service Committee speaking at the YWCA Tucson's third forum in their ongoing community discussion on mass incarceration and how it affects our community. Up next on 30 Minutes on KXCI Tucson, Attorney Margot Cowan. Good evening. My name's Margot Cowan. And what I'd like to do is um, try and put this in a bit of context for you because I think it's difficult for us to understand how in the world we came to where we are. And I think that that's very important because we need to really understand how it is that we came to this position in order to figure out how to move forward. You know, there's never been a statutory scheme in the history of immigration law in the United States that has functioned. What do I mean by that? 
Well, the first laws were, of course, the Chinese Exclusion Acts. And so we began our legislative history, if you will, in a context of of racism. There was a time when individual states began to promulgate immigration laws on their own, and then the United States decided that they would preempt the field and legislate uh, the whole area of migration and immigration. So the first broad policy statutory scheme was created in 1924. And that was the same year that the Border Patrol was created. And the Border Patrol, many people think, was created to contain the southwestern border. It wasn't. It was to stop Chinese people from returning to the United States from Mexico. And the statutory scheme that was created in 1924 was where we began to evolve um, our policy preferences. And we've, we've had all this time sort of two policy preferences. One of them is family unification. And when you, when you say that in the context of, of what we heard and, and what we're going to hear, it's hard to believe, but that's one of the precepts. And the other is a recognition that the United States requires the contribution of foreign-born workers to our economy. And so there are two different sort of um, categories of immigration that we lift up. The other thing that happened in 1924 that was interesting is that was the first amnesty. Of course, it wasn't called amnesty. It was just an opportunity to sign everybody up who was in the country so we would know who's here. And people didn't go from being uh, citizens of another country to being lawful permanent residents. They went from being Mexican citizens or Chinese citizens or whatever their country of origin was, and they became United States citizens without going through a process, a middle step. Then the next time that we did that was in 1948. And the reason we did it in 1948 is because the scheme that we had set up in 1924 didn't work. In other words, although we said we want to unify families, that spouses of U.S. citizens ought to have priority, that people ought to be able to easily immigrate into the United States and obtain documents, that didn't happen. So during the war effort, non-citizens carried a significant part of the war effort here in the United States on their shoulders. And so 1948 was saying thank you to the non-citizens that participated in the war effort. And it was a recognition that the statutory scheme that was created in 1924 didn't work because we had a whole nother significant population of people living in the United States without papers. The next time that this event occurred was in 1972. And we've done it about once a generation, about every 24 years. And in 1972, it was a little bit different. It was a celebration of the contribution of non-citizens to the fabric of our country. And it, of course, 1972 was the height of the women's movement, the Chicano movement, African Americans, the end of the war. It was really a celebration of our civil rights. But inherent in the registry, it was called registry in 1972, was once again a recognition that the statutory scheme didn't work. But we still didn't demonize non-citizens. Now that's not to say that in the 30s and early 40s, certainly in labor struggles here in Arizona, 
there were mass deportations out of the mines, both of citizens and non-citizens of Mexican workers. So it's not to say that um, those issues didn't exist, but it is to say that we continued putting forward and promoting in a policy context that we wanted to build our statutory immigration scheme on family unification and on, on a recognition that our economy needs uh, foreign-born workers. Things sort of changed the next time we did this, and we did it in 1986. And that was the first time that we took sort of a policy turn, and rather than a sign-em-up or a celebration of the contribution of non-citizens, or saying thank you, we granted amnesty. In other words, we forgave people without documents for the sin of coming and increasing the wealth in our country. And it was the beginning of a very important policy turn. Now, our statutory scheme hasn't changed. And what I want you to take away from this is many times people say to me, well, you know, my relatives got in line and they came the right way. Well, there wasn't a line. You know, you paid a quarter and you got fumigated and you came in. And you either worked or you were married to a citizen. There wasn't a line. And, well, why don't they do it right? Well, our statutory scheme has never worked. It's never worked. And so what we've done about once a generation is we've said we're going to sign them up because the statutory scheme doesn't work. In 1986, we signed up 3 million people. That's pretty astounding because today there are estimates upwards of between 11 million and 15 million people who are out of status. People are out of status not because they're bad people or they're criminals or something like that. They're out of status because we've never figured out how to create a statutory scheme that really honors our two policy goals, the recognition of the contribution of foreign-born workers and family unification. So I suggest that all of you go to Streamline and you look at who we are criminalizing. There are parents of U.S. citizens. There are spouses of U.S. citizens. There are federally recognized Native Americans. There are people who fly in the face of what our stated policies are about immigration. So that's where we are. It's been way past 24 years, and we haven't had any reform, and so we have um, we're in the midst now of what was begun right after the legalization of 1986, which was a demonization of people without papers. And what you have to remember about this, and what is also, what's just always very shocking to me, is that the whole process of being documented or undocumented, of being in immigration court, of being detained, that's an administrative procedure. We, we've criminalized it, and you'll hear more about that. But that's an administrative procedure. So it's sort of like if, if you went to Social Security and you applied for your retirement, but you're not old enough. That's an administrative decision, but then we wouldn't grab you and put you in custody. We just say you're not old enough. You know. So it's very shocking when you look at it as a lawyer and, and you look at the processes 
and the context and how we got here, we have a, um, a statutory scheme that's failed to serve our communities in an administrative context, and yet we've allowed this system to take on a life of its own. So, fast forward to 2015 in Tucson, Arizona. Undocumented mom is in a car, coming home from work. Other, other women in the car, maybe there's a couple of citizens, maybe there's a lawful permanent resident. They get stopped for a traffic citation. The undocumented mom will be taken out and will be detained and will be taken to Eloy. Now the other thing that we're seeing at this point that's, that's really hard to reconcile is that probably most of you, uh, many of you certainly, heard the president speak on November 20th when he announced priorities for the use of our removal funds and who we want to detain and who we want to focus those efforts on and who we don't. He made it very clear women like the example that I just used shouldn't be a priority. But there is a tremendous amount of resistance within Homeland Security to recognize those priorities. We'll have to leave it there. We'll continue with Attorney Margot Cowan speaking at the YWCA Tucson's third forum and their ongoing community discussion on mass incarceration and how it affects our community. The YWCA Tucson believes that this conversation is part of their social advocacy work and their mission of eliminating racism, empowering women, and promoting peace, justice, freedom, dignity for all. This set of workshops are part of the YWCA Tucson's ongoing year-long campaign for racial justice, held in conjunction with the Tucson Urban League, our Family Services Center for Community Dialogue, the Tucson Chapter of the NAACP, and the Black Women's Task Force. Thank you for listening to 30 Minutes on 91.3 KXCI Tucson. I'm Amanda Shager. This episode and all episodes of 30 Minutes are available at kxci.org.